a revolutionary baby monitor is born. I want to introduce you to a brand new baby monitor, Massimo Stork. Massimo Stork Baby Monitor tracks health indicators so you can get to know your baby better. Track your baby's pulse rate, oxygen saturation, and skin temperature with the high-resolution video and clear two-way audio from the Stork app. While Massimo Stork Baby Monitor is new, Massimo Signal Extraction Technology, or SET to be exact, has been trusted in hospitals for over 25 years. In fact, 9 out of 10 top U.S. hospitals, as ranked in the 2022-2023 U.S. News & World Report, uses Massimo SET as their primary pulse oximetry technology. Now, this technology is available for families at home, empowering confident parenting. Go to Massimo Stork to learn more. Please remember, Mosmo Stork is not meant to be used as a medical device. Hi, everyone. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Welcome to Yoga Birth Babies, a podcast produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. We will be diving into everything prenatal yoga, birth, and baby-related, hoping to inspire, educate, and empower you through your journey into motherhood. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Deb Flaschenberg. I am your host for Yoga Birth Babies, and today we're going to talk about Team Birth Project, as well as lowering cesarean rates in our country and improving birth outcomes for both the pregnant person and the baby. To have this conversation, I welcome back Dr. Neil Shaw. He is an assistant professor of obstetrics, gynecology, and reproductive biology at Harvard Medical School. He's an obstetrician and gynecologist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. Dr. Shaw cares for patients at critical life moments that range from childbirth to primary care to surgery. He is listed among the 40 smartest people in healthcare. That is by Becker's Hospital Review. I'm not surprised. He is incredibly knowledgeable, incredibly smart, and he has been profiled by the New York Times, CNN, CNN, and other outlets. This is my second time having a chance to speak with him, and he is always filled with such great knowledge, and he's compassionate and kind and very giving with his knowledge. Before we get to that wonderful conversation, just a quick reminder that all of our classes and workshops are online. So as we continue to trudge through this pandemic, we continue to show up for our community. And what is really exciting is our community keeps growing. So I'm always in our inbox at the for PYC, and I'm always looking at the waivers and the registration. And we've really broken out of just New York addresses. I saw somebody from Georgia. We had somebody from, uh, I think it was Seattle that joined in, someone recently from North Carolina. Today's postnatal, we had someone tuning in from Paris. It's exciting to see that we can support one another. When I opened the studio almost 18 years ago, I did so on the belief of three pillars. The first one was that the yoga asana can really support the body and can help with the functional birth. And then there was childbirth education that we'd weave into it. But that third pillar was always community. Pregnancy and heading into parenthood can feel isolating, can feel overwhelming. You can feel disconnected, especially now that many of us are not seeing our family and friends like we used to. So the fact that we can meet online in class, the fact that we can chat in the on these podcasts and support one another, it really means a lot. So here we are heading to our 18th birthday, and I wanted to thank you all who are listening and participating for being part of the PYC family and keeping us going. So thank you for that. 
Last little bit of news is the teacher training. This September and October is full with quite a lengthy wait list. We are having people come in and sign up for the November and December. I don't know what's going to happen in 2021, but right now we've got November and December. We are enrolling people. So that is for our 85-hour prenatal yoga teacher training class. And of course, we've got our smaller, our shorter teacher trainings, Who's Afraid the Pregnant Yogi, as well as Teaching the Postnatal Student. So we'll just keep showing up and help serve the population, the teachers, the pregnant people, the new parents. We're here for you. Lastly, if you haven't already headed over to wherever you listen to the podcast from, I invite you to please do so. Please go over there, leave a rating and review. It helps people find us. Oh, I said that was the last thing. I lied. I just straight out lied to you. Last, last thing is we've got two donations set up on our website, prenatalyogacenter.com. One is for our scholarship program for the teacher training, and the other is to help the studio continue to thrive during these challenging times. So if that resonates with you, check out prenatalyogacenter.com and you can find your way there. All right, we're going to take a super quick break and we come back. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Shaw. A revolutionary baby monitor is born. I want to introduce you to a brand new baby monitor, Massimo Stork. Massimo Stork Baby Monitor tracks health indicators so you can get to know your baby better. Track your baby's pulse rate, oxygen saturation, and skin temperature with the high-resolution video and clear two-way audio from the Stork app. While Massimo Stork Baby Monitor is new, Massimo Signal Extraction Technology, or SET to be exact, has been trusted in hospitals for over 25 years. In fact, 9 out of 10 top U.S. hospitals, as ranked in the 2022-2023 U.S. News & World Report, uses Massimo SET as their primary pulse oximetry technology. Now, this technology is available for families at home, empowering confident parenting. Go to Massimo Stork to learn more. Please remember, Mosmo Stork is not meant to be used as a medical device. Hi, Dr. Shah. I am so excited to speak with you again, and thank you for spending a little time coming back on my podcast. Of course, Deborah. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So I love the work you do, and I'm really excited to jump in. So I've had the fortune of having a conversation with you already. Why don't you just tell our community a little bit about yourself and your amazing work? <laughs> That's very kind. Uh, so I'm Neil Shaw. I am uh, the dad now to uh, two toddlers, which I think may be a change since last time. I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, but they're one and a half and three and a half. I know it was a couple of years ago. Um, I'm also an obstetrician and um, I lead a research and social impact program at Harvard that um, envisions a world where everyone can grow their family with dignity. That's amazing. So I last time I talked to you about cesarean birth, so we're going to go kind of back into that. But since we have last chatted, you are part of the Birth Team Project. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, it's the Team Birth Project. Oh, uh, sorry. Actually. I kept so, calling it the no, Birth Team Pro- Team no, Birth Project. Okay, that's my bad. Thank you for correcting me. No, it's okay. Me. No, Birth Team has a good ring to it, too. Maybe we'll change <laughs> it. But they. Um, so the idea of this project is that it turns out for every person everywhere on earth, every time that's giving birth, the team that comes together to take care of them comes together randomly. Yeah, uh, Meaning like, you know, if you're in labor, you don't necessarily know everybody who's going to be taking care of you. Uh, in some cases, you may know your obstetrician or midwife. Um, but in many cases, it'll be a person on call who you don't know. Um, you, you may not know which nurse uh, gets assigned to you. And so... Uh, and, and then the people that are in the hospital waiting for you to arrive, they don't know who's going to go into labor that day either. And so all of a sudden, 
you have to become this high-performing team for one of the most important moments of our lives. Um, and childbirth is necessarily a team sport where we bring together two complementary forms of expertise. There's, you know, the technical knowledge of the provider, and then there's like the lived experience of the person giving birth. But we don't have good systems to really bring it together well. And one of the reasons that we know that we don't have good systems is that something like 90% of the sentinel events in healthcare, the errors, the things that go wrong, ultimately fall down around communication and teamwork. Mm -hmm. Um, So when we look at trends like maternal mortality in the United States, there's one way of thinking about it where you're like, well, one of the leading causes of maternal mortality is hemorrhage. But it's a little bit misleading because, um, you know, the difference between the ones that lead to the really bad outcomes uh, and the ones that people survive and, and do okay with often fall down around communication and teamwork. And then there's the fact that people deserve more than coming through the process unscathed. Um, you know, survival is the floor and we should be aiming for the ceiling, which is making sure that people have safety as well as dignity, which again requires good communication and teamwork. It requires, you know, making sure that people have, um, ways of understanding each other, um, especially for the person giving birth, and they, they ultimately have the role and the say in their care that they want. Um, so that was the motivation for this. Um, and um, we've been working on it now for probably a little over three years, um, where we, we spent um, uh, the better part of a year designing it in consultation with experts across maternal health, as well as people in the community and birthing people and then field testing it uh, across the country to see if it could make a difference. Where So I know in Boston this is happening, and I believe when I was researching, it was also in, was it Portland or is it Seattle? Or somewhere on the west, northwest coast. Where else is this happening, this approach? You got it right. So it's in like the, um, the Boston area, uh, just outside the greater Boston area hub um, down um, – uh, on the sort of southern part of Boston Harbor. It's in the Puget Sound uh, in the Seattle area, and then it's also in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Those were the places oh. that we pilot tested this. And the reason we picked those places is because we wanted to test in places that resemble, you know, where most Americans are born, which is like not the Harvard Teaching Hospital. So we wanted to go to community hospitals, and we wanted to be able to learn, um, you know, our, our ambition with this was to create a solution that could work for people anywhere. So we wanted to test in really different contexts. Um, and, you know, in the Seattle area, there's a bunch of tech companies that, uh, you know, end up purchasing a lot of childbirth services on behalf mm-hmm. of their employees. And so there's like one context there. Uh, Tulsa is very, very different from Seattle, um, as is, um, you know, uh, the neighborhood or the community that we were working with in um, the Boston area. So, that was the thinking. Yeah. And across those places, uh, over the course of the trial, we ended up using team birth to care for, I think it was tens of thousands of families, um, that were involved in hundreds of clinicians. That's absolutely amazing. So taking this trial in three very different areas, what were the outcomes? Were they similar? They were in the ways that mattered most to us. So, you know, like if a big drug company like Merck or Novartis was creating a solution to, you know, that big challenge that I laid out around trying to make sure that people can uh, have safety and dignity in childbirth, Mm -hmm. they would invest like years in R&D. We spent one. They would probably spend 20. Um, And then they would um, 
they do like the phase one FDA trial first, which is like before showing that it is even effective, you just show that people can tolerate it. Um, it turns out that change in any environment is hard and change in healthcare is really, really hard. It's hard to get clinicians, especially to like care for people differently. Right. And, you know, our goal for this trial primarily was just to demonstrate that, you know, doctors and nurses and midwives wouldn't hate it. Um, and, uh, that they could do it feasibly even with limited resources and that they could do it well. And, um, we, we demonstrated that. Um, but some of the more exciting things that we showed along the way is that both for clinicians and for people giving birth in their families, um, it wasn't just the fact that they liked it generally, it was that they, uh, liked it in really specific ways. So, um, over 90% of the people who were giving birth felt, you know, as a result of doing this, that they had a better understanding of, uh, you know, what was happening to them, that they had the role in the care that they wanted and that, you know, their input ended up making a difference in their care. And what was particularly exciting as a scientist is that there was like a dose response, which meant, um, the way that team birth works, like there are these huddles basically between the care team and the person giving birth. And the more of those huddles that took place, the more likely they were to get those benefits. Um, so that, that was like the crux of it. And then it turned out along the way, you know, when people communicate and get better support, there were more vaginal deliveries. So in some places, actually at our Seattle hospital, uh, who had struggled for decades with one of the highest cesarean rates in the region, um, had a dramatic drop in their cesarean rates after having tried everything else that they've been able to sustain. Um, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, it wasn't just that cesareans were going down. It was like they seemed to be picking the right ones to do because um, maternal mortality went down or maternal morbidity went down and unexpected newborn complications went down too. Um, and anecdotally, it may have even had an impact on postpartum depression. So those are some of the things that we want to try to test going forward. Um, and there's some really, really exciting next steps, but that, that's kind of the crux of it. Well, those are fantastic outcomes. Um, cause I know last time we spoke, we talked about unnecessary cesareans, which I definitely want to get to, but just even touching on the fact that, you know, uh, postpartum depression went down, unnecessary cesareans went down. These are, these are really exciting outcomes. Can you talk a little bit about really the approach you talked about communication, but how does the team birth project communication and the, the team of the nurse and the care provider and the pregnant person and family, how does that differ? How are you guys changing the communication than what's commonly seen in the labor and delivery unit? Deborah, it is like almost stupidly simple. So <laughs> we, we, we spent, um, you know, all that time and now millions of dollars of resources to come up with a solution. And there's like no AI in it. You know, there's nothing like flashy. What it is, is it turns out that every inpatient room in a hospital in America has a dry erase whiteboard in it. All of them. A dry and erase whiteboard. That's, that's a dry the... erase whiteboard. <laughs> Go to Staples, yeah. and get your dry that, erase whiteboard. Yeah. And it turns out they're already there, but they're small. And they're primarily used for nurses to talk to themselves. And they're highly variable in terms of like what's written on them. And so what we did is we just made a big one that everyone can see. And then we standardized and simplified the content. So everyone in the room can not only see it, it it's like right opposite the mom's head wall, um, but they can understand it. And there's four quadrants. 
the first part of it, you write down the names of every member of the team. Um, it's particularly important now. I mean, it was always important, but now we're often communicating through masks and it's hard to know who's mm -hmm. who. So you lay out like who's part of the team, starting with the person giving birth herself as the primary member of the team. Um, and then there's a part where you write down only the things the person giving birth can tell you, which include preferences, but also include other things like, you know, energy to push is super important yeah. a couple hours in at 3 a.m., but it's not a symptom and it's not a preference. But you write down, you know, only things that the mom can tell you. And then you write down um, the plan. And then one of the most powerful parts is you just write down a commitment to when the team is going to get back together again and talk. Hmm. And you can write down a time if you want to, but you also don't have to commit to a time. You can write down, you know, when you think you might want to push or like whatever, you know, and we don't prescribe what you write in any of it, but it turns out that aligning this way, um, creates this incredible accountability. And it's also a way of like allowing the birth plan to be dynamic because I think a lot of, um, providers, struggle with birth plans because they think that it's fixed mm -hmm. and they're like, well, circumstances can change. And this just allows people to have conversations and, you know, align. And even if you do need a C-section in the end, at least there's a better understanding of why you had the C-section. What first got place. you to that point? Oh, I love yeah. this. I love that part that you put the name down. I know that seems so small, but when I was attending births as a doula, it kind of made my, gave me goosebumps when someone's like, mommy, do this. Like it's some, it seems a little belittling. Like this is a person that should have a name. So just simply addressing someone by name as opposed to just mommy, I think that can give someone, some, as you mentioned, dignity and autonomy and, and make them feel like they have agency over their body. I think so too, Deborah, and actually um, safety because- uh, there's a whole science to what makes teams high performing, and you basically need two ingredients. Uh, the first is psychological safety, which is the permission and opportunity for everybody to speak. Mm. Um, and, and that's what that does. So it's like it's nice to know people's names, too, and it is dignifying to refer to people's names and not say mommy. But it also um, gives everybody a role, mm -hmm. you know, and it it. Um, it's hopefully empowering to the person giving birth. And it's also, you know, the places where there's dynamics between nurses and doctors and doctors and midwives, it's, it's empowering for everyone to have a role. Uh, and it works the same way that uh, the surgical safety checklist works, which is this thing where it turns out just the way that a pilot has to run a checklist before they hit the throttle of a plane, uh, a surgeon has to run a checklist before they pick up a scalpel. And this was like a mind blowing innovation when it was introduced, um, you know, like 10 years ago, uh, so much so that when they did this, it drops mortality in half for every surgery on every continent. And after the smallpox vaccine, the WHO thinks it's the most impactful thing they've ever done. Now, this checklist looks a little bit different depending on where you are. But mm -hmm. the one thing that every checklist has is that every member of the team introduces themselves. And if you do nothing else on the checklist, it turns out that one step of saying, you know, I'm Neil and I'm the obstetrician, uh, seems to save lives because that gives everybody a voice in the room uh, when they need to point out something that shouldn't be happening or should be happening. It also seems to, not that I want to take anyone off a pedestal, but kind of levels people a little bit more. And I feel that when someone feels more relatable, like, hi, I'm Neil, I'm the obstetrician, then you're not 
saying like, hi, I'm coming in with all the knowledge. You're saying, I'm a team member. I have certain knowledge and expertise on this level, and I'm going to work with you as opposed to I'm coming in and I'm calling the shots. Maybe I'm just inferring that, but is that part no, of the- <laughs> it's the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, uh, one of my mentors, Atul Gawande wrote about how we need to sort of switch from the cowboy mentality to the pit crew mentality. Yeah. And, I like that. Um, you know, and that, that's basically the whole thing. And if you think about it, I mean, nobody can tell you what the person giving birth is experiencing except for the person giving birth. That's mm-hmm. like their expertise and it's hugely relevant. And then, you know, as the OB, I have some technical knowledge and expertise too, but it's really the nurse in 99% of the settings that is spending all the time at the bedside. In fact, in Tulsa and in, in most of the country, you know, the obstetrician's not even in-house, you know, and so they're really managing the labor. And so, yeah, it's, it's important to get everybody level, on the level a little bit. Oh, I love that. So now people might be listening to this and they're, they might be game for it. They're like, I like the level. I like this, especially the outcomes. I mean, that's the stats just kind of speak themselves. What if a hospital is not already set up like this? How can a pregnant person approach their care provider about working more in this manner if it's not ready to do so? That's a good question. I mean, I think that honestly, this whiteboard that is game changing is the crutch because what we're, it's almost a sleight of hand because people are like, oh, no big deal. I'll just put up a whiteboard compared to like a lot of other things you might do to change things up. And then everything that's on the whiteboard is so obvious and so simple um, that it doesn't threaten anybody because they think that they're doing it anyway <laughs> when they're being their, their best selves. But the thing is, they're not doing it reliably for every person every time. And that's mm-hmm. what makes the big difference. So it's kind of like a physical intervention with the whiteboard, but it's really a behavioral intervention in disguise. Um, and if you think about it, like on earth one, where you have the whiteboard and earth two, where you don't like the theory of change for how it makes a difference is it creates accountability so that when people have different points of view, they have to work it out. They can't just leave things unsaid or unknown, you know? Um, so you don't necessarily have to have a whiteboard up and, um, but maybe there's a way of using the principles of team birth, which is, uh, you know, and it's a, it's a large burden. I'm conscious of this to put on the person giving birth because everyone who's giving birth is vulnerable and uh, has limited agency because they're in labor, which is why having doulas and support people is so important. Um, but I think, well, one one part of the answer is right there, making sure that you've got, you know, um, people to help you advocate. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, which again, it's, it's more complicated in, in, in these days where we have visitor restrictions in hospitals and things like that. But, um, whether it's physically or virtually just making sure that you're not, you know, you're, you're with an advocate who knows you well, and then, um, to just like lead from where you stand, which is like your lived experience. Nobody can argue with that, right. <laughs> you know? And, um, and, and I think most clinicians, uh, really want to attend to that. Like they really do. It's just that um, sometimes we don't receive information in a way that makes us realize that that's what we're hearing. We're hearing somebody's lived experience. We're not. um, And, you know, the other thing that is key here is that so much about pregnancy and uh, labor is just uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And um, it's just honestly like it's uncomfortable and it's 
also normal for it to be uncomfortable. And a big part of all of our roles, whether we're doulas or obstetricians, is to kind of reassure people that it is normal. Um, and the key, I think, especially when it makes a difference in people's safety uh, and, and probably their dignity, too, and they're not feeling heard, is to um, point out that while, you know, it may be normal for the person taking care of them, uh, it doesn't feel normal to them. Because that, that's sort of like the common thread in a lot of the stories I hear where people end up feeling dismissed and um, and then ultimately, you know, in the most tragic cases, like they end up getting hurt because uh, they're trying to express that they're concerned or in pain and they're not being hurt. Mm. And so now I'm wondering if a whole bunch of people are going to start showing up to their hospital along with their birth ball and their peanut ball and their bag with a big whiteboard. <laughs> <laughs> that would be awesome. I would love that. And set it up and be like, hi, this is my team. Um, yeah. But I, I think, you know, the idea of the communication is huge. And I'd be very curious to see how this unfolds in other places than the three uh, the three testers and see if it can be, I'd love to see it incorporated in, lar- in the large scale. Or how is it planning on being scaled up? Well, part of it is now we can make the case that uh, you know, clinicians in the trenches in community settings in really different places, not all, not only like it, but they're able to do it and uh, with, with limited resources and we can show that it makes meaningful differences. So that gives, gives us a lot to stand on. Um, and then we've got a couple of different strategies for scaling up. Um, one is to... Uh, work with partners to implement at larger scale. So we're working with uh, insurance companies uh, and also large employers. Um, and and we're, we're, we're trying to work with state governments as well because Medicaid um, is going to become increasingly important. Uh, in fact, um, especially now in a recession economy where you know um, our unemployment rates are, are up, the number of people enrolling in Medicaid has gone up. And uh, a lot of the fall election at the state level and the federal level will probably turn on expanding or extending Medicaid for, for all people who, who, who may qualify, but particularly for, for birthing people. Um, so we're, we're trying to sort of figure out who are the scale implementers, because it's not me, that we can partner with. Mm-hmm. Um, so in, in one case, it might be a, a state Medicaid system. In the other case, it might be uh, you know, an insurance company that covers a large market across a state. And then in another case, it might be a big employer. It turns out that Walmart buys more childbirth than any other entity in the United States um, by far. There's a Walmart baby every hour um, because the way our country works, we often tie insurance to employment and employers end up sponsoring healthcare for large numbers of people. So it's a way of scaling up. Um, you know, the other thing that we're doing, though, is we're trying to be really intentional about going deep in a couple of places in the country where there's really important context. And, um, you know, having agency is important for every person giving birth, but it can be the difference between life and death for some people mm-hmm. uh, more than others, especially um, people who've been historically marginalized or oppressed. Yes. And um, we're going to stick around in Tulsa. And one of the things I'm most excited about is... Um, you know, Tulsa is a city with a really sordid history of racial violence. Um, there was a massacre about a hundred years ago 
that uh, didn't make most of our textbooks, but was probably one of the most violent uh, acts of racism that our country has ever seen. And the city of Tulsa is sort of reconciling the history of the Green Street Massacre now. They're coming up on the centennial of it next year. And, you know, they're uncovering mass graves. It's like this whole thing. And the city, like many cities in our country, is very racially segregated. And there's a hospital in Tulsa that has, you know, some of the um, widest racial disparities and some of the toughest outcomes in the state, uh, in a state that already has not the best outcomes compared to the rest of the country. And we're going to put a lot of resources and time in partnering with that hospital uh, to see if team birth can be a solution for racial equity as well, um, if a lot of it at the end of the day comes down to agency and being heard. That's that's absolutely wonderful. I'm so glad to hear that because, as you mentioned, the inequity and infant and maternal mortality is huge. And it's great to hear that this can, we know that the outcome from the tests you've done can make a difference. And that we're really digging in to help marginalized people. So I guess I'd love to talk a little bit about cesarean rates in general. We're going to take a quick break and we come back. Let's talk about the importance of lowering cesarean rates in our country. We'll be right back. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, we are back. So you, we've already talked that the outcome from Team Birth Project can lower cesarean rates. Can you talk a little bit about why that's important? I feel like it's so common to have a cesarean. It's just kind of accepted that people may not realize why it's important to focus on lowering these rates. Sure, Deborah. I mean, so it's important in and of itself because um, let, let me just start by saying there's a lot of people who are going to be listening, hopefully, that have given birth. And, uh, you know, it, 
just based on math and statistics, like the plurality of those people will have had C-sections. So nothing that I'm about to say is meant to invalidate other people's experiences or to like scare people. Mm -hmm. But it, you know, it, it turns out that taking care of a newborn infant is easier when you don't have a 10 centimeter incision on your abdomen. So that's one thing. You also can't get surgical complications without doing surgery and things like hemorrhage, infection, and organ injury are three times more likely to occur with a C-section than without one. And then it also turns out that obstetricians are the only surgeons that cut on the same scar over and over again. If you're like a vascular surgeon or neurosurgeon and you operate on a place that you operated before, that's like a bad day in your work week. But because most moms have more than one baby, it's pretty routine for us to cut on the same scar. And it turns out the first time you do a C-section when there's no scar tissue, it's a really straightforward surgery. And the second time when there is scar tissue, it's a pretty technical surgery. And sometimes it feels like operating on a melted box of crayons. Um, and it can actually be quite dangerous. And sometimes the placenta can get caught up in all that scar tissue in ways that cause a lot of bleeding and can be really, really dangerous. So part of the reason why we care is that um, when we talk about maternal mortality and morbidity in our country, it turns out you can hurt people when you do too little too late and when you do too much too soon. And C-sections have become a too much too soon problem. Um, and then it also turns out like, you know, everybody who's taking care of people in labor are trying to support labor and the outcome of well-supported labor for the most part is a normal vaginal delivery. So it turns out that when you're looking at hospitals that have high C-section rates, it's not just the C-sections, it's that it tells you something about the quality of how they're taking care of you in labor. Um, if a place has an extraordinarily high C-section rate, it probably also means that they don't take very good care of people while they're in labor and that matters too. Yes, it does. So when someone is pregnant, they're looking for a care provider. It's not just the care provider's numbers. I'm guessing it's the hospital's numbers as well that they should be looking at. Yeah. I mean, this is a nuanced point, but um, C-section rates are a really difficult concept because it turns out it's a rate. So the denominator matters, right? So if you're like an individual doctor, you only do so many C-sections. And personally, like, you know, I'm on the labor floor maybe once a week. So if I do a C, if I do one C-section, my rate goes up by a lot because the total number of C-sections I do isn't that big. Right. Um, but in aggregate, you know, the hospital does many, and so the rate becomes a little bit more of a reliable indicator of what's going on. Um, and you know, at the individual level, it probably means one thing. At the hospital level, it means something else, and at the country level, it means something entirely different. And so. We often get that confused because, you know, we look at the national C-section rate and we're like, oh, every hospital should have, you know, a rate that's based on that. But it's just not that straightforward. Okay. That, no, thank you for your honesty there. So in the beginning of our chat, you talked a bit about unnecessary and necessary or avoidable maybe is the word you used. When would you say, and again, I don't want to offend anyone that had a cesarean, but it could just maybe highlight reasons. And it's always, I think, important to then if the person wants to know why they had a cesarean. But is there some time that you could say it was an unnecessary cesarean? And what would even, what would, how could someone avoid that? And what would constitute an unnecessary cesarean? Oh, man. I mean, 
Well, let me tell you the dilemma. The dilemma is that personally, when I do a C-section, I'm always right. Because if the baby comes out looking perfect with high APGAR scores, I think, oh, it's a great thing I did a C-section because the baby looks great. And then at the same time, if the baby comes out not looking great with low APGAR scores and is blue and lackluster, I think, well, it was a sick baby. So it's a good thing I did a C-section. So it's pretty good to be me because I'm right either way. It's not even one of those things where like hindsight is twenty twenty. It's like, you know, no matter what I do, I can I don't have a counterfactual. I don't know what would have happened, right. so I can always justify my decisions. Um, then there's some cases. I mean, C sections are designed to be life saving surgeries, and they are. So you know, if you if you have a situation where the placenta is in front of the baby, or you know, th- there are cases where you absolutely need a C section. It turns out the majority of cases though are in this gray zone. Where And the two most common reasons to do it are um, you have uh, what we call labor dystocia, which means that your labor is taking a lot longer than usual. And um, the reason we care about that is because in settings in the world where people don't have good access to care, you can get, you know, labor obstruction where the baby gets stuck and moms and babies can die. We almost never see that in the United States, but... When labor progress is really slow, that's the outcome that we're trying to avoid. And you can imagine, like, it's just hard to know um, how long to wait. Um, And, uh, you know, what's really tough at 3 a.m. when a a person has been pushing for one hour and then two hours and then three hours and four hours, the longer that you wait, the lower the chances that they're going to be successful. Mm-hmm. And the higher the chances that the mom or the baby will get hurt. And so, you know, as an obstetrician who's trained to get in there <laughs> with a scalpel and, and get the baby out, like you, you kind of have to make that call. But at the same time, if you don't wait long enough, you might be subjecting somebody to an unnecessary major abdominal surgery. Um, so that that's the dilemma. But when you get an quote unquote unnecessary C-section, it may be that you know, we didn't wait long enough to give you a chance. Um, or it could be that, you know, we sort of overcalled our hand in the setting of other ambiguous information, like these fetal heart tracings that everyone's watching. And um, I mean, there, there's a lot of people out there who come away from their delivery with this narrative in their head that, you know, their baby was at the brink. <laughs> and then because of, because of these fetal heart tracings that the baby's heart rate dropped and then you know, there's this heroic rescue, um, which sometimes is true, but many times it's uh, just not clear that that's true. So with the Team Birth Project and more of the communication, you guys are actually seeing the, the C-section rates drop. So when some when it's starting to look like, all right, we're, we're in that gray area, how does the communication work with the birthing person? Saying like, it's been a while, or we're seeing some worrisome fetal heart rate tones, what, what would that look like? I think part of it is that, um, it, it may work through this communication being a form of labor support in itself, um, in, in many settings. But I think, you know, cause to really avoid the C-section, it's got to create a good team dynamic well ahead of the decision. Like that was one thing that we learned early on. Like you can create a shared decision-making process, for whether to do a C-section or not. But in like 90% of cases, it's going to be too late for it to really make a difference. Mm -hmm. 
you really have to kind of establish the way of working together early on, especially around those ambiguous things. The other way that it might work is just providing clarity about why we're doing the things that we're doing. Because um, sometimes, uh, you know, you may have like an ambiguous fetal heart tracing. You may also have a labor that's taking longer than average. Uh, The mom may have high blood pressure at baseline, and then she might have a fever. And like all those things together just make everybody stressed, right? But none of those reasons in and of themselves are reasons to do a C-section right there and then. So that's the other way that it helps is it just brings clarity because you have to like write down what the plan is and explain why that's the plan. It also seems like trust is maybe a little higher that if, if you have to, as the obstetrician, make a quicker call, you've already established communication, you've established trust. And so the birthing person, while they may not be in the position to say, okay, let's do this because it may be more emergent, they may trust that you've really done everything you could and you really believe this is the right way. Therefore, on the other side, they may actually feel still satisfied by the birth experience and even didn't go how they had originally planned. I'm not sure if that makes that sense. We do have, it does make a ton of sense. I mean, those are some of those heartening anecdotes, you know, and I think it's part of the buy-in from the clinicians too, is that, uh, you know, I mean, trust is so important, right? And I think there are many settings where, you know, you've got some capital to start with. There are also many settings where the trust hasn't been good from the jump because there's a lot of communities for whom we haven't done a very good job. Of, of earning their trust mm-hmm. as a healthcare system. Um, and then you, you throw, you know, a COVID-19 pandemic on top of it that takes every inequity in society and throws into a pressure cooker mm-hmm. where, you know, um, there are visitor restrictions and there are communities that feel over-policed at baseline and they come in and they try to bring their people and there's actual police blocking the way. And, you know, there's all kinds of things that make the trust really, really hard. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that at the end of the day, um, this is fundamentally like a trust innovation um, and that that trust goes a really long way towards, um, you know, in, in ambiguous circumstances where different people have different information, solving the problem as a team seems like the way to go. Um, and then if the outcome ends up, ends up being a C-section, um, at least everyone can feel good about that. And there, there are many cases that we've heard of, uh, you know, people that uh, have had had a C-section, but they felt like they really understood why and they felt well cared for at the end of the day, which is what matters. And it, it's what matters to the clinicians yeah. too. Yeah. When, if someone does have to have a cesarean, do you guys try to make it more of that family-centered birth idea that maybe lowering the curtain, kind of talking someone through it? Um, you know, I think that that practice varies a lot by setting in the United States. Uh, in my environment, that is something that we offer if people want that. Mm-hmm. Um, you, it's pretty preference sensitive too, because a lot of people that are going to surgery don't want the clear drape. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, you know, we, 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 but it is something that we offer and I, I have seen, um, that for some people, they really appreciate it. Have you seen any pushback about, it seemed like this whole idea of the communication, kind of leveling everyone out, calling people by their names, the whole idea of the team birth project just seems so successful in my mind. Have you seen any pushback when you've introduced it? So you have your three areas you've introduced it, but just talking to colleagues or the idea of expanding it, have you seen any care providers like that doesn't really work for me? Yeah, for oh. sure. I mean, um, <laughs> I was expecting you to say no. Okay. No, I mean like the, 
Well, one is whenever you're trying to do anything, you're going to, you know, there's an, there's an adoption curve, right? So like it's, there's no magic to this. It's like good old fashioned canvassing. Like you go to a hospital and there's some people who are going to be amped, right? Like they're like the early majority. And then there's like the laggards, the back end who like you'll never get to, or you'll get to like later. Um, or it'll, it'll just take more time. Uh, I think, you know, it's the, the more common scenario is that, uh, there, there are some people who are like all out detractors. There's some people who are like really, really into it, but I think most people are a little bit agnostic. They feel like they, uh, it won't really make a difference because they're good communicators to begin with. Um, and it's not until you create accountability around communication that they're like, Oh, well maybe actually, uh, I'm not getting across the way I thought I was. Um, and, um, you know, the, one of, one of the more fun things is like, when we were doing the surgical safety checklist work like a decade ago, a lot of surgeons would be like, I don't need this. Like, I know what I'm doing. Why do I have to run a checklist? And then we'd be like, well, do you think any of your colleagues would benefit from this? And like to a person, they'd be like, oh yeah, definitely. Like that guy over there, they need a checklist. And you're like, well, they won't do it unless you do. And they're like, okay, you know, so. So then if there is, what, what's the main resistance in a sense? They're like, I, I'm already communicating or, um, it's, it's not broken. We don't need to fix it. Or, or I guess we can say it is a bit broken. Um, <laughs> if we look at our cesarean rates and also how the infant mortality and, uh, not just infants, sorry, maternal as well. So how, how are you guys planning? I guess is it marketing. You just have to like market it to them. How do you yeah. plan on rolling this out? <laughs> well, I mean, until, until you've got the data to prove it for sure. I mean, and I think you have to listen with empathy, right? Because, uh, in healthcare, you often face a dichotomous choice between doing the right thing and the easy thing. That's the cesarean problem. You can either do the right thing in many cases and support people in labor, which is way more work, or you can do the easy thing and pull the ripcord and do the C-section. And, um, you know, people that are working on the front lines are themselves working hard and burnt out. And um, every single thing that we try to do to improve the system feels like bludgeoning them with one more thing they have to do. So part of the idea of team birth was to design a solution that actually makes the right thing, the easy thing to make their lives easier. And they have a good reason for skepticism because we've given them a bunch of stupid solutions to date. Um, and you know, they're like, well, you know, I don't have time for this. And you're like, well, this will save you time. And then you have to prove it. <laughs> right. But it turns out it does getting people on this, on, you know, and then you're like, well, you know, it's not just about your time. It's about the value and like your, your patients, like, you know, it seems like people that are giving birth really, really value this. And even in Tulsa where the, um, docs aren't in house, uh, we've learned how to be flexible and, um, design a team birth solution where they can call in and, um, like everybody benefits, you know, the, the nurses feel better supported, uh, you know, the, the people giving birth feel like their obstetrician, even though they're not there, is like tracking. Um, and we've been able to get buy-in that way. And, you know, at the end of the day, it made a difference in people's care. So if I'm putting this more into the individual, because I'm thinking about people listening to the podcast and say we have a pregnant person listening, she's like, I really want this. My, my hospital's not set up. Is there a, one or two requests this person can ask of their their team, their, their care provider, whether it be an OB or a midwife, their doula or their partner that can just set this up a little, just take a step in that right direction. That is a very good question that I'm not sure I know the answer to Deborah. Um, you know, because, um, 
I think I, I know that the, at the end of the, the day, uh, the goal is for there to be a good team. And that requires that trust and safety that we mentioned. And then it requires like, you know, a structured way of communicating basically. Like basically what we have to do is define like, what are the things that we should be talking about? So um, I think to both ends, in some cases you'll be lucky enough to have a team, a clinical team that knows that and is good at setting that up. And I guess maybe the question comes from like, what if that's not the case? Like whether they have team birth as a solution or not, like what if I'm in a situation where I'm not feeling very aligned? Um, And I think, you know, clarifying names and roles goes a long way. You don't need a whiteboard to do that, Uh, especially in these times where for the foreseeable future, it's unlikely that you're going to encounter anybody taking care of you that's not masked. And it's just genuinely hard to know who's who. because uh, everyone, uh, and then, um, you know, the other thing is, uh, the, those basic elements that would have been on the board are the things that you should talk about. So if you don't have clarity about what the plan is, um, that's an opportunity to try to get clarity. And then, um, you know, that step around, uh, confirming when you're going to talk again or what that's going to depend on is so critical because most people in America giving birth feel like a passenger on a plane uh-huh. that's being held on the tarmac without the pilot telling you what's going on. That's like the entire experience. And that step goes such a long way towards creating alignment. So I think you deserve people to ask for that too. That's fantastic. All right. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, one tip or piece of advice you'd like to offer a new and expectant parents. Now this can come from your experience as a parent. This can come from your experience working with pregnant people and as OB. So choose what you like. We'll be right back. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. All right. So what gem do you want to lay on us? What tip or piece of advice you'd like to offer new or expectant parents? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I feel like I don't have a lot of wisdom there uh, (laughs) because, you know, I I mean, I've got all kinds of pearls for people who are, uh, well, one is, okay. So if you're pregnant, everybody has a take on what you should be doing what you shouldn't be doing and most of it's nonsense (laughs) so like do what you want for the most part like don't don't do anything dangerous but like you know um if you want to exercise exercise just don't play rugby you know and if you if you want to eat sushi it's probably fine just don't like buy it at a gas station you know like that's exactly what my doctor told me (laughs) he's like just don't get it at the corner bodega get it somewhere reputable (laughs) yeah so so like i mean i think i think that there's 
that just sort of sensibility, if not conventional wisdom. And then, you know, on the back end of it, I would say what I, what I, what I, it's not even wisdom. It's just a recognition that, uh, as an obstetrician, I had delivered thousands of babies before I had to ever bring one home myself. And even as a person who like works in the birth community and thinks that I'm high functioning, it was one of the most deeply humbling experiences I've ever had. And just know that, um, you know, if you feel like it's really hard, it's because it is. It's really hard. Um, <laughs> it doesn't get yeah. easier. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and that, I don't even mean that as like a suck it up. It's more just like, um, to validate that, yes. uh, that, you know, cause a lot of times people can, you know, internalize that and, uh, feel like they're not a good parent or something. That's not the case. Oh, I love you said that. Yes, it is hard. It is really, really hard. It's rewarding, but it's hard. So mm-hmm. you speak all over the place. Your work is everywhere. Where can people find your work? Um, well, uh, I don't know, Google. Um, so I'm on, I'm on social media. That's a place where you can connect with me. And, um, uh, you know, I, I try, um, I guess the kids are using Instagram these days. I'm still trying to figure it out, but you know, I, I spend time on Twitter because, uh, uh, as, um, awful as Twitter can be, one of its benefits is it democratizes, uh, information and who has access to being able to have a, a microphone. So I find it to be a good space to like, you know, uh, at, at least to try to, as a person, provide a filter among mm-hmm. all the nonsense of what, what might be worth paying attention to and, and what might not to be. So, uh, but I'm on Google, you can type my name in or you can find me on social media. How's that? That's perfect. I'll make sure I have that there. You actually speak at a lot of events. I've heard some of your stuff. So, and I've read, I've read some of your stuff. So I quite appreciate the work you do. And I really appreciate the time you spend and really the work you're doing for pregnant people. It's important. And it really seems like it's making change. So I thank you for that. Thank you, Deborah. Um, it's really great to reconnect with you on this podcast, and uh, actually through this conversation and just hearing your voice, it like kind of brought me back to our last conversation. So maybe in a couple <laughs> years we can do it again. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Be well. This has been an episode of Yoga Birth Babies, produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Thanks for listening. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.